0: And we're not trusting in the present promises of a God who draws near to us, a Savior who hears us and loves us. The responses oftentimes that come out are, are, are sinful responses, and we try to give some categories to them. And so what we're going to do in this session is we're going to begin to say, okay, how do, we, how do we actually get over here? How do we actually get over here to this fruit tree? Uh, you know, Paul Tripp gives the, gives the analogy of fruit stapling, which I think is hilarious. You know, I, I live probably about a, a block away from these massive apple orchards. And uh, every year about this time of year, our family goes and we pick apples. And, you know, it's such a comical thing that, that Tripp points out. But imagine if, you know, you had this, this fruitless tree out in your backyard and you see your husband out with the ladder and he's got this huge barrel or, you know, basket of apples and a stapler. You know, and he's going out, and he's you know taking an apple and stapling it to the branches, right? We we, we would want to call a doctor, right? Because we think maybe something's not right here, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of times in the Christian life, we're we're doing that. We try to do that. We try to do the fruit stapling thing, right? We 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 see the the bad stuff over here, and we say, well, how do we get over here? And instead of actually, I would say, responding right in faith and repentance uh, out of this, we we become fruit staplers. We we go get a little basket of fruit and try to staple it to the tree. And so what we're going to try and do in this session is we're actually going to talk about this piece right here. We're going to talk about the cross. And how do we move from this to this? And the answer is through faith and repentance, right? Uh, We talk about repentance not only being the way into faith, but it's the way on. In faith, right? That, that repentance is not just something that you do one time, right, when you uh, repent and believe the good news, but that repentance is actually the way to live a life that pleases God. So that's a little bit of the, the big framework. When we think about this type of change, then when we think about the change that we've already talked about uh, in those first two sessions, we want to talk about what, what really motivates that. What are the present realities that we need to be reminded of that can animate our obedience and that can animate godly change, I love what Brian Chappell writes. He says this. He says, There's nothing more effective than guilt to get people to obey God's standards, but there's nothing less efficacious in sanctifying them to God right? Nothing is more effective than guilt to get people to obey God's standards and nothing less efficacious than sanctifying them to God. So what I want to say here is the the reason and the motivation towards change is not that I want all of you to feel really bad and depressed about what we talked about last session and that that becomes the motivation. That's really not the motivation to change of, oh man, I'm a really bad person. And that then animates and motivates your obedience. That's not going to be efficacious. I think that guilt can work as a motivator, but it's rarely a long-term motivator. And you've probably even seen that, those of you who are parents, right? You can motivate for a little bit of time in parenting with, with, with guilt, but in the long run, it's not a long-term motivator. Let's read, let's read what I think about is a little bit of a better motivator. Turn over in your Bibles, if you have them, to, to Galatians 2.20. I think Paul gives us a little bit of a clue of what this life is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to be motivated. And again, it's not going to surprise you that, you know, when Paul has the opportunity, he's going to restate the gospel. He's going to give us the gospel in yet another way. And, and you can even see here in this way that it's broken down, Paul is going to talk about the redemptive fact that's true about you, the present reality, and then the reality of how it actually impacts your everyday living. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You begin to see in Paul's thinking, he kind of parses out this this diagram in, in, in three different movements, right? There's the redemptive fact. He says, listen, this is what is true about me as a believer. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My life now has been caught up in Christ. I am a part of his family. And that present reality means because I have been crucified in Christ that it's not about me, but it's about what? The present reality is that Christ lives in me. I'm supposed to be a signpost to his glory. I'm supposed to be pointing other people to him. The results then, or again, maybe that's a bad word. We could maybe put fruit, right? The fruit then for everyday living is this, is the life that I live in the body, which I love, I love how he particularizes that. It's not, our, our faith never comes disembodied, right? It's very much an embodied faith, right? The life that I live in the body, my actions, my words, my deeds, my behaviors, right? Those all come mediated from a physical body. Paul says the life I live in the body, I live by what? I live by guilt, you know, God guilts me into doing this. No, I live it by what? I live it by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. The opposite, I really think, of being motivated by guilt is being motivated by what? By love. It's being motivated by love. And in fact, Paul talks about that in First Corinthians 2 where he says, may the love of Christ compel you or may the love of Christ control you. Love is a much better motivator than guilt And love then really is the motivator that motivates us to move towards Christ and to move towards bearing fruit. So because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, which we know about and we talk about and I think we rightly highlight, what do you do then with the sinful responses of life, those thornbush responses that we talked about? How do you move from that thornbush over to bearing fruit? And that that pathway, that pathway and that action is the action and the lifestyle of repentance. Uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane write this. They say, yet so many believers only think of repentance in faith as the way to enter the Christian life. They fail to realize that faith and repentance link us to Christ on a daily basis. And I actually find, we'll talk about some misconceptions about repentance in just a little bit. I actually find that that's probably the number one misconception about repentance is that it's a one-time act. It's just something that you do. It's like a one-time thing, and then you're good to go. That's kind of your ticket into heaven, and you never need to repent again. But as Martin Luther said, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Uh, Tim Keller goes on to say this. He says, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus All of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus Christ. So before we talk about repentance, let's talk about some common misconceptions about repentance. The first of which is this, is I oftentimes find that people have a very self-centered view of repentance. Repentance is all about me. Uh, Repentance is a one-time thing, which we already mentioned. Uh, This is a big one. A lot of times people say, well, being sorry is the same thing as repentance. And we'll talk about that tomorrow in the message about a lot of times sorry or the language of apology kind of gets lumped in with forgiveness and repentance. But being sorry is not the same thing as repentance. Uh, Also, that repentance can be selective, right? A lot of times people say, well, you know, I'm not as concerned about this thornbush response over here, but, you know, I'll repent from this. No, repentance can't be selective, All of life, repentance is what we're after. Another oftentimes misconstrued or misconception about repentance is that confession in and of itself is repentance. And I don't know about you, but in Cleveland, I live in a very Catholic area. Northeast Ohio is heavily Catholic. And so a lot of times we view repentance as simply going into the box, confessing to a priest. The priest then tells you, you know, hey, that's ten Hail Marys, gives you some type of penance. And and that's what true repentance is but confession isn't repentance. Uh, Confession is a part of the repentance process, but it's not the whole of what repentance is. Uh, Oftentimes in in marriage counseling and in individual counseling, there's the belief that repentance should eliminate consequences, that repentance should eliminate any consequences for my sin. So, uh, you know, I've cheated on my wife and I've asked her forgiveness and I've quote unquote repented. So why doesn't she trust me? Why is, why is she still asking me to be in counseling or why is she following me around or why is she asking me all these questions or asking me to be accountable? Doesn't, doesn't she forgive me? And the idea there is that repentance should just eliminate any consequences that should come about from uh, one person's actions. Uh, the other thing is that sorrow equals repentance, right? And we see this in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks to the Corinthian church and he talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Some people think that just being emotional about their sin that that's repentance because I'm I feel bad about it or that I express some sorrow. There's a lot of times that people can express sorrow over their sin and that's not godly repentance. It's a worldly sorrow that Paul ends up saying actually leads to death versus a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And so what I want to do in in the time that we have left is talk through seven principles of what true and authentic repentance is. If we're looking at that fruit tree and we're trying to say, how do we move from those thornbush responses to being a person that bears the fruit that Christ has called us to and given us the grace to be able to fulfill, how do we do it? And we're saying it's the the lifestyle of repentance and faith. It's coming to Christ, acknowledging those thornbush responses. It's saying, listen, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. It's that repentance That is so key. And so we want to really spend some time unpacking what true repentance is. The first principle is this, is that true repentance is a gift from God. And this is one of the very first things that I'll start with in counseling, is trying to help counselees say and understand that repentance is not a self-generated act. Repentance is something that God grants to you and gives to you as a grace. Now turn over in your Bible to Psalm 51. Again, this is a well-known psalm, I'm sure, to many of you. It's David's famous psalm of repentance. We'll pick it up in verse 10. And again, a verse that is incredibly familiar for many of you. David cries out in verse 10 of Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And I think sometimes we miss that. Who's doing the creating here? Who's doing the renewal is it me? No, it's God. David is crying out and he's saying, God, will you do this? Will you create in me a clean heart, excuse me, and renew a right spirit within me? I've included a number of other verses here that you can go to in cross-reference for your benefit, which all locate and speak to that reality that repentance is not a self-generated act, but it is a grace from God. It is something that, that he quickens her heart to turn to him in repentance. Uh, number two, the second principle: true repentance is not a single act, but again, it is an ongoing and continual attitude, uh, continuing lifestyle. Right? This is something that we continue to do throughout our Christian life. In Matthew chapter three, verse eight, uh, John the Baptist is kind of excoriating the Pharisees, who you know are kind of mocking him, and and, and John says, "Hey, you're a brood of vipers." Knock it off. Go bear fruit, he says, in what? Go bear fruit in keeping with what? In keeping with repentance, right? Go bear fruit that actually testifies to the fact that you're, that you're changed, that you're repentant. And again, the obvious answer is that they, that they really weren't. They really weren't repentant. They weren't wanting to change. True repentance is not a single act. It's not just something that you do at the point of conversion, but it is a continual and an ongoing attitude. Number three, true repentance is not a mechanism to escape the consequences of sin. And in fact, I think Paul will actually tip us over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that true repentance actually entails wanting to bear up under the consequences of sin, that there's a willingness to have oneself vindicated, there's a willingness and a zealousness to bear with whatever consequences come from uh, my actions. God's forgiveness covers over our sin, But there are oftentimes still residual consequences that come as a result of our sin. And again, David is a good example of that. In his sin with Bathsheba, uh, you know, that that whole entire story, David repents, but there is still a consequence, right? There's still a significant consequence on the loss of that child that he had with Bathsheba. So repentance isn't a mechanism to escape the consequences of sin. And sometimes you can see in relationships or in, in families or in marriage Uh, that sometimes we can rush to repentance because we think that repentance will eliminate certain consequences for sin. And and in doing so, we show that we don't really understand what repentance is. Number four, true repentance is not what you do for yourself, but it's what you do for God. Right? Again, a lot of times because we can have such a self-oriented view of repentance, we think that it's primarily about me. But again, we look at David and in Psalm 51, what does he acknowledge? He says, No, against you and you only have I sinned. Right. David rightly realizes that what his sin has done is that it's it's brought disrepute to God and to his glory. And David wants to seek forgiveness for that. He is repenting from that. Sin is not just about you and about your reputation. Right? It's not just about now your reputation's marred before the community. It's primarily about God. Number five, true repentance is not merely of the fruits of sin, but of the very roots, right? A lot of times when when we talk about repentance, that there can be a superficial repentance that just says, yeah, God, forgive me for, you know, the externalized actions. But is there any heart work that has been done to say, "And, and God also forgive me for wanting and desiring, and again, fill in the blank. And that's actually what fed the external sin, right? That's what actually fed those actual thornbush responses, right? God, forgive me that I continue to seek after other people's praise. I continue to want other people's approval. And so when I don't get it, I get angry or I shut down or I get nasty or I gossip or I get jealous, right? That repentance lives at that level where you can repent from those things, but that also repentance moves a little bit deeper to say, and here's why. God, forgive me of that. I, I don't want to be a person who lives for other people's approval at the expense of living a life that pleases you. Repentance is not merely of the fruits of sin, but of the very roots. Number six true repentance is not secret, but it's open. True repentance is not secret, but open. David Pallison oftentimes would say, No one sins in the abstract, so repentance can't be in the abstract, right? Our sin always works itself out. It's, nobody's got private sin. You know, your sin always affects other people, whether or not you know it or not. Again, the the famous story of Achan and, and what he did and how that affected uh, the people around him. It's sin that makes us believe and deceives us into thinking that we can just uh, nurture and cultivate these secret gardens of sin. But our sin always has an effect on other people. And so our repentance, I believe, should be to the extent of uh, of, of seeking forgiveness and seeking to restore relationships that have been affected by that sin. right? Repentance can't just be something that you do on your own before God, but then you never go and seek forgiveness from anybody else who's been affected by your sin or who's been injured by your sin or who's been hurt by your sin. Number seven, true repentance is both negative and positive True repentance is both negative and positive. And again, this actually gets at what the word repentance means. And again, I'm confident that you know what this word means, but it's, you know, it's a turning to and it's a turning from. You are turning from sin. And I think that that, friends, is actually the first part that most people to some degree understand. It's the second part that I don't know if we get sometimes, that not only are you turning away from sin, but you are also turning to Who? You're turning towards Christ. It's impossible for you to turn away from your sin and not turn towards something else, right? right. If I asked everybody to stand up and face this wall and say, hey, do a 180-degree turn, in that motion, you're actually doing two things. You're not only turning your back on sin, but you're also turning and facing Christ. It's, it's one and the same thing. Repentance is that when I'm saying no to sin and saying no to that lifestyle, that I am also necessarily turning my gaze towards what? I'm turning my gaze towards Christ. Tim Chester writes this. He says, how do we repent? He says, we repent through faith, turning to God in faith and from sin in repentance. And they are the what? They are the same movement. You cannot repent from your sin and not also turn from Christ. They are one and the same thing. And friends, that's oftentimes the piece that I find missing. It's not just putting off certain things, but it's also what am I going to put on by the grace of Jesus Christ? we think about repentance, and maybe that gives us a little bit of a way to to talk about repentance from more of a principled type way, is there a place that we can actually begin to see the fruits of how this works itself out? And I think that we can. Uh, So turn over here in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. What does a lifestyle of repentance look like when we are walking in a way that That pleases God. When we are turning to him in repentance and faith, how do we know that we're actually turning to him and that we're actually bearing the type of fruit that comes out of repentance, right? In a Matthew 3, 8 type of way. How do we know that we're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Listen to what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 where he gives us nearly two dozen different characteristics of what this new life looks like. We'll pick it up in verse 9. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. What do you see there? It's like you're seeing this repentance come out in actual actions, right? That repentance actually lives in the fruitfulness, in the fruitful life that we live, right? When we talk about, well, what does repentance look like? What does a repentant fruit-bearing tree look like? Well, here's a great snapshot of it. Change is happening, and I'll tell my counsellors this, change always happens in the details, Right? That Paul here is accurately describing the details of what repentance and faith produce in the heart of someone who loves God and who's turning from their sin. They're going to have a love that's genuine and that's not hypocritical. It's not going to be, hey, how are you doing? But internally, I'm completely disinterested in who you are as a person. It's not going to be a returning evil for evil. It's not going to be be, uh, the type of dynamic where I say I'm going to pray for somebody, but then I never do. Paul says, No, we're going to be constant in prayer. We're going to be patient in tribulation. And he gives us so many different ways that we can begin to look at our life and say, Listen, there's tangible fruit that comes from a life that is committed to repentance and faith. Another way that we might put it is if we go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is another well known passage that I'm confident that you're familiar with, where Paul talks about this repentance faith dynamic from a put off and put on standpoint. He says that we're called to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right, the idea there is, listen, you and I are called to put off and put on, and that to be renewed there is in the passive voice. That's the work that the spirit is doing kind of references that work in 2 corinthians three eighteen that that this work comes from the lord who is the spirit that the spirit is empowering and animating and motivating our obedience and that in concert with the spirit we are putting off and we're putting on we are putting off the old way of life and we are putting on the new way of life if you take out the to be renewed if you remove the spirit's work what you get is a very legalistic christianity It's a very works-based Christianity. It's a very works-based of, hey, I stop doing this, and I do this. If you take off the human responsibility part, and you take off the put off and put on, and it's only about the work of the Spirit, you get a very quietistic Christianity. You get a very let go, let God. You know, has somebody ever told you that? Hey, I just let go and let God. You know, he just, you know, he's got this. God's got this. You know, he's going to do it. And I hear people pray like that, and I say, that's not biblical, God doesn't just say let go and he's going to do everything for you, right? There's an active element to our faith. That's why when we read earlier in 2nd Peter, what does Peter say? Peter says, "Make every what? Make every effort to add to your faith." That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, "Work Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's why Paul say here in Ephesians 4, you've got to put this off and put it on. So again, what we see is when we read Scripture and we read Scripture in context, we see that, that God calls us to action and he also reminds us of the Spirit's work in our lives together to motivate and to bring about this obedience. Now, in the final time that we have left, what I want us to try to do is I want us to try to bring all four of these elements together. Is there a place in Scripture, again, that we can go to where we can see the heat, the thorns, the cross, the fruit? Can, can we see all of this come together? And I think that there's a wonderful story that does bring all of this together, and it's in Numbers chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, turn over with me to Numbers chapter 11. And in the next 15, 10, 15 minutes or so, I just want to walk us through this narrative to understand how all of these different things come together. You guys probably already know the, the, the storyline, right? That the children of Israel had been enslaved. They had been in bondage for over 400 years. That is a, a super long time. That's a really long time, Okay. Uh, Moses is this mediator that God calls on, and through Moses' leadership, uh, through his leadership, he he rescues and redeems, and and he initiates this exodus, and he brings the people out of slavery, out of bondage, and he's tasked with taking them into the promised land. Well, it's 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 a crazy story because what should have been a ten-day journey is a forty-year trip, right? And uh, some of you who have husbands that never ask for directions, you say, yeah, I know what that feels like, you know. Um, you know, may, you begin to think, like, what is happening here? You know, this is a 10-day journey. I mean, you look at maps, you know, this is where I like maps, and you see where Egypt is, and then you see where Israel is, and you're like, I don't think it should have taken 40 years for you to get there, but for some reason it happened. You know, they've been out of uh, Egypt for about a fortnight, And in the Exodus narrative, right, we see that it's been about a fortnight, which is, you know, an English way of saying 40 days. You know, they've been out for about 40 days, and what do they want to do? They want to go back. They want to go back to the slavery. And, you know, God continues to show up for them. He provides things for them. He provides manna. He provides a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire by the night. I mean, he does everything that he can to remind them that he is for them and that he loves them. And here in Numbers 11, we get another snapshot of this dynamic, okay? So we'll just read it together. Numbers chapter 11. It says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortune. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. I mean, can you imagine like living back in that day, right? Like you start to complain, like your kids start to complain and you like want to like rain fire down on them. I mean, that's kind of what God did. You know, the people are complaining, like whole sections of the camp just completely get consumed in fire. Verse 2, the people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a what? They had a strong craving. Isn't that fascinating language? you know, for, for Moses to use to describe this. The rabble that was among them had a really strong craving, had a really strong desire. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost what? That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Remember what we talked about earlier about the gospel gap? how forgetful we can get, how myopic we can get. That's exactly what's happening to the Israelites. I guarantee you the Israelites were not eating meat that costs nothing, and they weren't having a huge fruit buffet every single day for lunch. But as they look back, their spiritual amnesia is kicking in, and they're saying, man, that, that 400 years of slavery was terrific. Could we go back to that? That, that shows you how sin can distort our thinking. This strong craving that's inside of them that doesn't want to trust in the Lord but wants to trust in themselves. They're literally telling Moses, hey, can we go back to that? Can we go back to the 400 years of slavery? Well, in verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the servant, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor here in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse, carries a nursing child to the lamb that you swore to give their fathers? Where, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see your wretchedness. I mean, it's a hot mess in the desert, essentially is what we are learning. Moses, right, Moses over-exaggerates the situation and the circumstances, right? He kind of catastrophizes a little bit, right? When we talk about those thornbush responses, he says, listen, did I give birth to two million Israelites? You know, why would you do this to me? Why do I have to bear up all under this? You know, you should, you should just kill me. Just kill me and get rid of it. So what you see is you begin to see two parallel tracks. You see the children of Israel, their heat is what? What's pressing in on them? It's their food, right? It's their food choices. They don't like what they have to eat. They're kind of tired of the manna. And so the thorn bush response that comes out is what? It's complaining. It's bitterness. They want to go back to what they had in Egypt. What's the heat for Moses? What's his trial? What's his situation? It's people. It's people. He's tired of dealing with the people. I love what Paul Tripp says. Paul Tripp says, I love ministry. It's just the people I can't stand, you know. And, uh, you know, if you're a pastor, you probably get a really good laugh because you know how true that is. You know, I'd love ministry if I never had to deal with people. And that's kind of how Moses felt. You know, God, I I love ministry, but just these people, they're driving me nuts. And it's to the point where what's his thorn push response? He wants to deny, avoid, escape. Just kill me. Just kill me. It's just it's just not worth it, right? So I mean, it's it's a it is a literal hot mess. You've got children of Israel and you've got Moses, and it and it gets worse. So, uh, verse uh, verse drop down to verse eighteen. Basically, you know they're all wanting meat. Give us meat. We're so tired of the manna. Like let's get off the carbs. You know could you just give us some meat? And God says, therefore, the Lord God will give you meat, and you shall eat. It's one of those things, you know, that parents sometimes say to their kids, you know, be careful what you wish for, you know. And, and listen to what God says, verse 19. You shall not just eat one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have what? Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? It's one of those fascinating things. God says, listen, you think that you know what's best for you? You think that you know what you really want, what you're really after? Well, I'm going to give it to you. Kind of like what he does in in, in 1 Samuel with, you know, hey, we really want a king? He says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. He says, listen, you're going to have so much meat, you're not going to know what to do with it. And so they they get meat for over a month. And, and, And we'll pick it up in verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and it let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all the night and all the next day and they gathered quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp while the meat was yet between their teeth. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called kibroth Hadavah, because they were the people, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From kibroth Hadavah, the people journeyed to Hazroth, and they remained there. Now, if you look at kibroth Hadavah, if you have an ESV Bible, you probably have a little bit of a superscript there that has a footnote, and you look down at what that means. It literally means graves of craving, right? God's anger is kindled against the people. They failed to see his provision. He's given them what they've asked for. There's no gratitude. There's no thankfulness. They don't recognize that God is their provider. God consumes them in their anger, and they name the place literally the graves of craving. The situation keeps getting worse, which we don't see how the situation could get worse, but look at chapter 12. Directly after all this happens, it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So not only is it the children of Israel having issues, not only is it Moses having issues, now Moses' brother and sister, they've also got some issues. They've got a little jealousy, right? You know, why are we going through all this bad stuff? Well, it's probably because of your wife, right? Any of you guys have family drama? Any of you guys have, like, in-law issues? Well, Moses, I mean, that, that's no surprise. You know, Moses' family doesn't like his wife. You know, Moses and, you know, Aaron and Miriam are off in the corner, like kind of whispering over about that woman, you know, that he married. You know, does God only speak through Moses? What about us, right? And, and I'd encourage you to read the rest of the section because it, it's, it's, not a pretty, it's not a pretty situation that the children of Israel... Oh, I don't know what I did. We'll just keep... I think we went way, way past, but we're almost on our last slide. What I want you to do now, because that's the situation that they were in, you see the thornbush responses. I want us to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we begin to see the entire situation come together. Their experience of the heat is not a good one. They experience the trials, they curse God, they get angry with God, and you see the consequences from that. And we might say, well, what was God really up to? What was he trying to do? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we begin to get a little bit of a sneak peek into that. Listen to what he says in verse 2. It says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might what? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was what? What was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not? And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that what? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I mean, it is, it's an amazing insight, post-script of a situation that we look at and it actually kind of confuses us, right? You look at why in the world are they wandering in the wilderness? Why does God make them go through all that? Why does he consume their fires with camp? Why does he only give them manna for such a long time? Why couldn't he diversify a little bit and throw in some veggies or give them some quail every once in a while? Why does he do all this? It doesn't really make sense to us. And here we begin to see in Deuteronomy, God says, listen, here's why I did it. I was testing you to see what was in your heart would you trust me i was actually trying to mature your faith i was actually trying to see that listen man can't live by bread alone but man has to live man has to live on the bread that i provide for him that's what god was trying to do the very thing the very thing that the children of israel and that moses and miriam and aaron were trying to get rid of was actually the very thing that god was using to bring about change in their life Right. If you go back to your diagram, Moses, Aaron, the children of Israel, they're all saying, listen, we don't want the heat. We don't want the heat. We don't want to be stuck in this situation. Oh, there we are. This is the slide we're on. They're all saying, we don't want the heat. And you know what God is saying? God's saying, actually, this heat is the very thing that I am using to bring about what? To bring about your redemption, to bring about the change that I need to. It's why we oftentimes say in counseling, or I'll oftentimes tell my clients, that God is taking us where we do not want to go to produce in us the change that we couldn't on our own. God is taking us where we do not want to go to produce in us the change that we couldn't on our own, right? Does anybody want to have their sanctification worked out in the Judean wilderness? Probably not, but that's exactly where God has them because he's seeking to bring about change that they couldn't on their own. He's trying to test them, to reveal what was in their hearts. And so you and I, when we come to this process of change, I guarantee you that the vast majority of us, when we think about change, we've already identified we normally want this to be gone. We don't want the heat. We don't want to go through the difficult circumstances. We don't want the complex relationships. And the postscript to all of it is God is saying, actually, I'm going to use this to bring about your change. I'm actually going to use this to reveal what's in here. What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? What do you value? More often than not, as we know, what it does reveal is this. And the beauty of God's grace then invites us into repentance to say, Listen, God, forgive me. God, I have run after other things. I have run after other things that I thought would satisfy that craving. I thought that more food or a different kind of food or a different leader or if Moses had married a different wife, I thought that that would give me what I want, but it didn't. Forgive me. I repent. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And, and that, friends, is what gets us over here. That's what gets us to a spot where we can bear fruit and live the life that God has called us to. And so when we, when we think about the process of change, what I've wanted to do is to not only give you those building blocks, but especially in that last building block, to give you a little bit of a roadmap that you can begin to map on the circumstances, the difficulties, and the hardships in your life to begin to maybe even conceptualize who is God and what is he up to in my life? Maybe the one thing that you came into this weekend with, the one thing that was bothering you, that was annoying you, that was frustrating you. You know, one of the great joys of my heart would be for you to now reflect and say, I wonder how God might be using that to bring about change in my life. Instead of me coming in and saying, man, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I wasn't married to him. I wish I could have this. I wish my kids did this. I wish my boss was like this. Maybe the question you will start saying is, I wonder who God is and what he is calling me to do through faith and repentance in the midst of this. And friends, that's why James 1.5 is so important, because the only way, friends, that we can get there is we need the wisdom from above. We need the wisdom of God to help us navigate this. Otherwise, this, this doesn't make sense to us. This doesn't make sense to us at all. And so when we read Scripture, when we come to Scripture, when we, when we come to, to church and when we're, when we're involved in community, we, we want to be people who have eyes to see who God is and what he's up to in our lives. We want to be people who understand that we have to understand our final destination if we're going to understand how to make sense out of the present, right? The children of Israel had a little bit of that, at least in, in principle. God saying, listen, get to the promised land, enter into my rest. And the children of Israel, I mean, they're literally at the threshold and they can't see it, right? We talked about change destination. We talked about the power for change. Right, God literally is with them, and they still can't see it. I mean, He's with them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud every single day. He's saying, "Listen, I am here for you. I am acting on your behalf," and they still don't won't tap into it, won't live out that reality. We have to change in community, right? We have to change and realize that we were built and made for relationships. That you were built and created to to work out your salvation and uh, to to actually live out the Christian life, not on your own not in isolation, but with the people that are in this room, right? God didn't just place you anywhere. He placed you right here today with these people. And, and so, friends, my, my hope and my goal for all of us as we leave a time like this is that we leave here not just, again, with more information, but that we leave with, with a mission, with a mission to actually leave here to change, that we actually leave here with a mission of, God, help me. God, have mercy on me. God, quicken my heart towards faith and obedience to, to really be the person and to, to be the Christian that you've called me to be, right? And, if, and in Ephesians 4, one way where, where Paul is beseeching the Ephesians, right, where he says, therefore, I want you to live the life that you have been called to, right? That's, that's what I, I, I want for you. That's what I desire for you is that all of us leave here with that sense of calling and that mission and that we actually do it. I actually leave here animated and motivated to be able to do that and and it's a good reminder because in some small way you've actually given me the opportunity to remind myself of this to remind myself of i have to be also applying these exact same things in my own life so i want to thank you and thank you so much for 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 coming for dedicating again this amount of time to think about something like this that is of such essential importance Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life where you've dedicated an entire day to just thinking about how you uh, need to change, uh, but it's really been a privilege to be able to do that alongside with you. So I'd love to just close this in prayer and then uh, to do a little bit of Q&A. That's kind of the plan. Again, we can maybe transition into Q&A, but just for sake of this time, to bookend it with prayer, to close it in prayer, I think would be helpful for us. And I'd love to just pray for all of you and just pray that God would quicken your hearts, that he would show up for you, that he would be near to you, he had mercy on you, and uh, that Cape Bible Church, Cape Bible Chapel would become a place where, where the love of Christ is known by all who come through its doors. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this afternoon and we confess that we are weak people, we confess that we're sinful people. Father, we confess to you that more often than not, we we get a little forgetful and a little bit nearsighted when it comes to remembering and knowing who you are. Lord, would you forgive us of that? Would you forgive us of our spiritual amnesia and our myopia that only sees what we want, only sees about building our kingdom? Lord, we want to be about your kingdom, not ours. So forgive us when we have done things that have been more about our kingdom and not yours. Father, I pray for every single person here at Cape Bible Chapel who's here today to talk about and to think about biblical change. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be guilty of what uh, other people can be guilty of, which is where we leave with information, but we don't actually work it out into our lives. That it doesn't matter if we have a lot of good knowledge, but if it's not working out in love, Lord, we're not going to be edifying anybody. We're not going to be edifying ourselves or edifying the body of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would take these truths that have been planted through the teaching of your word and that you would bring forth a great harvest. Father, I pray that people would remember most what we've learned from your word, not from something that I've said. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who is suffering, Father, if there's anyone here today who has had someone sin against them in in an egregious way, Lord, would you draw near to them? Would you bring comfort to them? Father, would you help them to see you in the midst of their suffering and in the midst of their hardship, that you're a God who is intimately interested and desires to care for them? Father, if there's any of us here today who are struggling in secret gardens of sin, Father, if there's anyone here today who is nursing gardens of sin and, and, and nobody knows about it, don't want to be vulnerable because we'd be so embarrassed and so ashamed, Lord, would you, would you give them the courage and the foresight to reach out to somebody at their table, to talk to Pastor Ben or to talk to Pastor Eric or somebody else in leadership to, to just say, hey, I need help. I'm slipping away and externally everything might look okay, but internally my heart is, my heart is a mess of disordered desires. Lord, would you do that today? Father, would you help all of us as we seek to make goals for change to actually live those out? Help us tomorrow to actually go out on mission and already begin to practice some of the things that we've talked about. Would you help us to be a people that that have love that is genuine and that is sincere and not hypocritical? Lord, would you help us tomorrow to to maybe sit next to somebody different, to talk to somebody different, to gravitate towards the needy, to gravitate towards the least or the lost or the last. Would you help us to ask questions of people that are meaningful and not mundane? Would you help us to offer prayer to someone to help them in the midst of their hardship? Would you help us to be hospitable, to invite somebody over? Would you help us to see the needs that are right around us? Help us to get near needy people, Lord, because we are needy people ourselves and so father i pray that you would do what i can't do and that through the work of your spirit you would apply the truth of your word to their lives and that you would bring about change not only in them but also in me and we ask this in christ's name amen